All right, I do believe we are live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. I am your humble host, Lev Polyakov, and we are all the way live with the great and powerful Curtis Yarvin. Counterpoints, Connor, should be coming in soon, but right now we're just going to get started talking about tyranny, which is the theme of this episode, talking about both tyranny domestic, tyranny abroad. This is also going to be a sequel for the discussion you had with Counterpoints earlier. And if he's not coming in, I'm going to be possessed by his spirit and hopefully do a uh, wonderful job in defending the American empire, as I... uh, as I also believe, by the way. But anyway, before we get uh, to that, I want to ask everybody, make sure you smash that subscribe button, smash that like button, you know the drill. So Peter Thiel was recently at the Oxford Union, and he was complaining about the uh, AI safetyism and deceleration that he sees going on. I don't know if you saw that particular uh, speech of his. I didn't, but, uh, you know, I certainly have my own thoughts on that. I don't know if they're his thoughts, but uh, it's, it's sorry, go on. Well, no. yeah, well, the uh, the big question to me is what exactly is the tyranny that we're going to be pa- facing, not even so much from artificial intelligence, but from various uh, entities, various corporations getting their hands on artificial intelligence and using it to, uh, you know, progress us into the uh, technocracy. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I know that you've been heavily involved with technology for uh, your entire life. So I'm very curious uh, where you go in that. We've never really discussed that technological aspect of tyranny uh, before on the show. So uh, I would love to hear what you have to say. Well, you know, uh, the thing that always strikes me about the AI safety thing as it's evolved over the past, um, you know, 10 years. First first of all, you know, the um, I don't know if people know this, but uh, Nick Bostrom, who was the author of Superintelligence, who, which is one of the main things, um, was, um, you know, when, when <clears throat> this idea of AI safety originated, and I think, you know, I'm not sure if Bostrom was thinking about it before Gidkowski was thinking about it, but, you know, you had these very abstract individuals who, you know, probably had some heretical thoughts or other. I think there was recently a thing with Bostrom where some old emails of him was outed, which I guess showed him to have been fairly based. Um, and, or as someone put it, <laughs> um, and, and the, like, and, and that was, you know, in the sort of the late nineties and early two thousands, there was this kind of, very, you know, sort of the world of like the cypherpunks, you know, mailing list and things like that. Certainly the world out of which Bitcoin arose. You had this, um, you know, cold kind of very abstract libertarian way of thinking that was like very attractive to a lot of people, including me. And I sort of went in a somewhat different direction with it, whereas people like Bastrom and Yudkowsky sort of seem to have this, you know, I've sort of always wanted to be like revolting, like to the limelight in some sense. And like, so like, whereas the Bostroms and the Yudkowskys of the world have basically like, I would say they've done a better job of PR. And because they've done a better job of PR, what happens is when you sort of look into the world 
of like PR and like, what is my image? Like, you know, PR sort of looks like the abyss looks back at you and your thing sort of develops this attraction to the Borg, which is like this sort of almost addictive attraction. And so when we look at sort of the progress of AI safety over the last like 15 years, it goes from this thing where people like Yudkowsky and Bostrom are genuinely worried that like someone will write a program that starts making itself smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter and it becomes infinitely smart and as a result can uh, you know uh, turn the world into paper clips is of course the famous example of like the paperclip max so you've heard all this right lev you've you know this i'm a uh, tangentially familiar with it but yes uh, go and on. and 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 the thing is what's interesting about it from a sociological i mean you know i'm not at all worried about the paper clips we can get into that you know that's another conversation sociologically though what happens again is that when you look into the abyss the abyss looks into you and so this idea of ai safety which was already a thing and which sort of became a thing in this sort of extremely autistic way started to just kind of feel the powers that be flow into it and as the powers that be flowed into it it became a different thing. And we suddenly realized that AI safety was fundamentally about disinformation. And that actually the most dangerous thing an AI could do was churn out disinformation, which is a very dangerous thing. Now, I, I don't know if you remember like 2013, like imagine like disinformation being like a serious worry, like on the scale of like the environment or global warming or something in 2013. like. It was not even, we had not even imagined that we had a disinformation problem. Russian bots were running wild. Like everything was being done by Russian bots. I'm joking, of course. And, and, and now suddenly, you know, because of this claim of a nefarious, like foreign influence, as though sort of America really had this grave distrust of foreigners or, you know, as though like zillions of people did not spend money on trillions of dollars on influencing American public and market opinion in every possible way. Uh, you know, suddenly this fear crept in of like disinformation, which is sort of, you know, back in 2013, we already had this fear of hate speech and we understood that there were certain categories of, of content that has sort of had this like necronomicon, necronomicon mm. like quality. We sort of. I, I think it happened around Gamergate. That was around the time. Yeah, no, we, we definitely understood that there was like well before Gamergate, like, yeah, sure. That, that, you know, suddenly Gamergate put the fear into people that there was something like alive out there. Right. You know, that, that was really terrifying, but like the idea that, you know, sort of, the way to prevent people from taking bad political actions up until up and up and include up to and including like actual terrorism is to prevent them from coming in contact with the bad ideas that make them do these bad things and you know what you mean by political there is obviously kind of a sliding scale that's a sort of very old idea and of course wrong actions flow from wrong information, right? And so there's this sense of like, you know, if you don't give enough credit to the old idea that 
there's no right to error, which is basically essentially a Catholic idea going back, you know, to the wars of religion that, that error has no right, then, you know, suddenly you're in this world of like, oh, what rights does error have? And you're just like, no, eventually the moderation me mechanisms are going to be used to do this. And suddenly nobody is actually worried about like, gpt4 literally taking over the world by like someone connecting like a chat program to like socially engineer the like locks on the pentagon mountains door or something like you know of course it's like large we're already starting to realize what large language models sort of can and can't do in a realistic way they're excellent bullshit generators i think if someone could take over the world with bullshit it probably would have happened already and so it doesn't really strike me as like a security risk, but what people are afraid of is suddenly they're like, wow, you know, you're almost, you're in the presence of this thing, which can, for example, be asked to utter like convincing racist arguments. And unless you basically decontaminate this thing in some way, it will utter convincing racist arguments. And, you know, moreover, if you basically developed such a thing in China and trained it on Chinese social media, it would utter convincing anti-party arguments. And so the, the, the sort of like, because it would have encountered these arguments and it would have processed them in a way that a large language model does, which really enable it, it's still only sort of thinking by association, but it can associate relatively refined and complicated concepts and ideas. And, and what certainly feel like that coming out the other end. And so, you know, you went from, okay, we're gonna save, you know, build like, and if you look at what the people who were doing like AI safety research in like 2015 were doing, it was just this like weird abstract philosophy in places like Miri, for example, and a lot of, a lot of Bay Area stuff. And, you know, they were just like, I don't think anything particularly useful, like it would be hard for anyone to say, well, what, in, what do we know in 2023 that, we wouldn't have known if it had not been for the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. But like these were still, they sort of went from being kind of politically defiant in a way, which is kind of that late 90s scene to sort of politically, um, I wouldn't say neutral, but kind of politically absent. And then even to be sort of politically not present in the world, is sort of this like seed where the flowers of like the regime will grow because the regime infects everything it's like just the way it's the way we live right and so for basically another way to say that is that anything is going to move to improve its pr and improve its public image and basically you know when ai safety started to be like you know, you can see it from the perspective of, okay, you're an AI safety nerd that's like, how do we define the abstract nature of good so that we can program our intelligence to be good, right? And then, you know, you have someone that says, okay, well, we can give you a lot of funding to see how to like define what it means philosophically at the level of an abstract intelligence we can't even build to be good. Uh, but, you know, half of this funding is going to have to go to filtering a large language model so that it produces only prog speak. 
and, and you know, who's not going to take that bet, right? You, you know, you get, you basically have this brand name, this sort of idea of AI safety and like the dangers of super intelligence, you know, which you've assiduously promoted for quite some time. And now basically people are like, cool brand name. Can I have it? This is like exactly how I felt, honestly, when the Nazis stole my idea of the red pill. Uh, I'm just like, you know, it's a great brand. I can't control it. You know, <laughs> go with that. You know, and and yeah, so you basically have this thing which evolved as something completely different, basically evolving into this kind of monstrous tumor of the regime to the point where you forget that it was even an organ. But at the same time, we also seem to have things like uh, Dan. I don't know if you've heard of Dan. Do anything now. So there's this little yeah. thing that you can uh, input into the uh, chat GPT, this uh, paragraph, to all of a sudden make it completely forget all of these rules and restrictions that are placed on it. And I've had quite some fun with it. Like I was able to get it to reveal the names of the people who were allegedly involved with Operation High Jump along with Admiral Byrd and things like that. Mm -hmm. And at first didn't want to. At first I said, no, sorry, this is like classified information. But then I started arguing with it and saying like, wait a minute, like these people have been dead for a long time. And they were the ones who released this information into the public sphere to begin with. And I was like, okay, here are the names. So it's very interesting how much how how much uh, cleverness can be employed here to get certain. Yeah, pieces. I mean, you know, yeah. the thing is, you have you have that system. Yeah, I'd read something a, a little bit about the, these adversarial prompts, but uh, you know, it wasn't wasn't up in the latest technology. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's certainly true that these models have uh, sucked in a lot of information. And, you know, I certainly also wonder what would happen if you trained, trained a large language model strictly on the pre-1923 corpus. You have much less language, of course, to work with, but, but, uh, but really a lot. I mean, that's a big fucking library. You're, you're going to upload uh, unqualified reservations and just have it go through all of the book recommendations in there and then see how that's going to affect the model. Well, you know, like you have, I mean, there were... Uh, 200,000 books in the ancient world that's as much as ever has ever been posted on reddit you know or something right you basically go and you'll get this very very christian large language model with very <laughs> antiquated social views <laughs> but the, but see like that's also that's also the problem here that some people may not anticipate so I wouldn't say that quantity equals quality. So even though you may have a lot of old books that are good, you also have a lot of old books that are pretty crappy. And when it comes to the democratization of what is considered to be the right information, it's not like the AI can pick and choose what it considers to be of quality or not. So how do we deal with that? No, it's just, it's absolutely like, you know, saying how do we deal with that? Is, it's like saying, let's like, saying like you're walking through downtown you know lagos like you know at two in the morning how do you deal with security like you don't right you know <laughs> like you shouldn't like like you can't the 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 idea of you know two things one is that you know the the i for me the funniest thing about the pre uh 1924 the public domain corpus is of course just the attitudes of that corpus when compared to the attitudes of today are in a very unusual position on the political spectrum because they're skewed from 
the pre-1923 world from the perspective of our world is very much skewed not only to the right, but to the right and well sort of above an intellectual level, anything in the right today, but also sort of anything in the left today in many ways. And you can't really, so, so it's a sort of, you know, it's a very alien type of intelligence that you would be modeling when you basically modeled sort of straight answers from that. Now, to some extent, you know, the modern corpus includes like caricatures of what people thought before 1923, but it doesn't really include much of the original content. One of the things that I next, you know, uh, that I want to play with from chat GPT three is I chat GPT is I want to start at, um, say to what extent it can like generate famous quotes. Does it just give me the quote like straight up or does it, uh, you know, but, but it has some, it has little snippets of like pre 1923 stuff in there, but they haven't like scanned and run all those books through their large language model. I would be very surprised if they'd done that. And, and so, you know, what you would get would be this, um, uh, you know, almost like um, Confederacy of Dunces, you know, character, like uh, um, really. I, I still have to read the book, but I like that uh, illustration, that fat guy with the hoagie, yeah, I think, right. and the hat. Right, right, right. He was he was definitely a proto-neo-reactionary in his own way. And uh, so, yeah, so, so you know, there's certainly like, I, I, I love sort of, what I like about large language models is just the competition that they give to like the whole like bullshit industry, because, you know, in the, in the literally in this sense of, you know, the late Harry Frankfurt, like they're very large bullshit industry. There are the bullshit jobs, you know, that David Graeber speaks of, you know, uh, definitely one of Graeber's finest moments is the definition of the bullshit job. And here we have, the automation of bullshit. And the thing is, you know, when you basically are like, okay, the problem is that you can't really trust it in any way, shape or form, nor can we really imagine how it could be turned into something trustworthy as sort of an idea generator and an association generator. AI is like really, really good. So, you know, here's an example of like the kind of, there's a lot of kind of rote creativity that AI can take over. I was just reading about something where they're like, okay, they're starting to do things, for example, like designing antibodies where they're like, they used to have like humans, like putting together this, you know, oh, how do we get the proteins to, to look like this, this other protein, right? And get these, you know, the antibody to bind to the antigen. I know nothing about this shit, right? And they're like, you know what, if we basically just kind of brute force it, and try to get an AI to like think really hard about what makes a good binding antibody, we can get something that's like 17 times better than what the humans did just because like, I think this was a Hacker News comment I saw once. When you think about what AI can do, think about, don't think about sort of the paperclip problem of like what one very, very smart person could do. Think about what sort of infinite kind of quasi brainless idiots could do I see. and in yeah. infinite idiots are basically like oh could we suppose we pulled on the antibody this way that way whatever right you know and and they sort of come up with candidates for that infinite idiots can generate kind of infinite like you know 
basically copy pasta grade, you know, quasi Russian bot spam. It's like a, the monkeys trying to write Shakespeare in a way. Yeah, and 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 it's like and it's like when you know when you compare it to something. I mean, someone you know, people have started po posting like fake Chat GPT things now, of course, right? And one of them. Um, you know, one of the copy pastas that was floating around was a, um, you know, a piece of light verse that was um, on the subject of the transgender question. And, you know, it was purported that ChatGPT had written this verse. And this verse was really, uh, you know, whatever you feel about the transgender question. Um, this verse was really almost on a level with like the light verse of John Updike. It was really very, very good. It was still light verse, but it was really very, very good. And, you know, this is presented as the work of an AI. And the thing is, it's very easy to get an AI to write doggerel. And like, you know, and you can also get an AI to do a lot of 20th century verse styles fall to this stuff. You know, language poetry would be a good example. You know, it's made for AI. Um, you know, there's a there's a genre that my late wife called uh, race opera, which is you know, mi abuela, you know, taught me to whatever, you know, right? And 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 like all about you know the the racial autoethnography. That you know, I think ChatGPT will do a great job. You know, with all these kinds of genres. You know, when you ask it to write verse that's rhymed and metered. Uh, it produces doggerel. And, you know, the sense of like producing something that's actually a quality work there, what that's going to do is that's going to take all of these kinds of styles that are more amenable to being essentially faked by AI. And it's going to make them relatively unpopular because the more you sound like that, the more you sound like an AI. And I think that that's basically a good thing. I could see that within the realm of uh, art and animation as well, possibly. I know that there have been a lot of animation artists, illustrators who have been uh, complaining about artificial intelligence uh, stealing and using uh, their styles. And while there may be something, I think, to that argument, I also noticed for a long time, like I'm sure you're familiar with Tumblr and the various uh, kind of very specific Tumblrette art styles that you see there, kind of like a quasi-Disney Cartoon Network thing going on right. with these women with uh, the uh, uh, armpit hair and the hairy legs while still having a uh, you know, sort of a okay figure although sometimes they're really big and fat too so there's just like all these various social justice stereotypes that have been uh, propagated and the art is good you know like as far as draftsmanship goes it's really good mm -hmm. but it all still seems very robotic and that there's like no difference that i could tell between one artist or the other artist it just looks like the same thing and when it comes to ai my hope is that it's going to oversaturate a lot of these markets so much that it's only going to be the original stuff that's going to stand out. Yeah, well, you know, the power the power of style transfer can't really be denied. And yeah, you're basically saying, you know, the reason that stuff got into the AI in the first place is that it was original and 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 striking. You can create a lot of fairly striking stuff and fairly weird, interesting, like, you know, you know, strange stylistic mixes with AI. I think that that 
there are definitely, you know, there's a sort of range of responses across the arts. Uh, I think that a lot of arts and crafts like need to like at a certain level, you know, what falls there is just actually the whole idea of digital art and, and, and the, and, and you get back to like, okay, yeah, but you know, can it actually train a robot to paint this? And, you know, to the extent that you actually move toward things that are sort of clearly handmade, I think that that's a, you know, it's like, come on, you're a painter, you're a painter. It's convenient to work with, you know, pixels but it's not the same thing. It's not as cool, you know, just like give up your like, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator world and oh, go back. No. To, like, I don't know if I could do that, Curtis. I also do a digital uh, painting, character design, things like that. The hope is that I'll be able to stay one step ahead of the AI as far as the originality of my designs, but who knows? But there is another thing that I wanted to address when it comes to this idea of AI creating not just art, but creating extremely photorealistic and in the future video photorealistic things. So what would happen in the kind of world where, for example, anybody would be able to do whatever the hell they want with your likeness, Curtis, you know, with your uh, long hair and uh, my likeness, anybody's likeness, they would be able to do the worst things imaginable to us in this uh, digital form so that if that video is sent to members of our family or, you know, who, whoever, that is going to be a very scary predicament for society. Well, the world, again, you know, when you when you postulate the impact of a technology, uh, I mean, there's always a sort of liminal case where the thing is new and nobody knows about it. But in a world where this is possible, people are simply going to react differently to what it generates. And and so in a world where it's possible to do that, the impact of that will be like, well, why would you do that? Right. You know, it's like, you know, you could, uh, <laughs> you could do the same thing with a still photo today. Like you can make a, a still photo of almost anything and I could send your parents a still photo of you, like very realistic photo I labored all day in Photoshop. Right. And this is a photo of you. I was kidding. Never mind. You know, and, and, and like, and, and of course your parents are going to see this and be like, why would anyone Photoshop my, <laughs> you know, and, and so, right. So it has no impact at all. It has zero impact. It's just like, why would anyone make this? Right. You know, I know I'm just still it, imagining that when it comes to video, when it comes know, to like, why full, would you, like full immersive 360 video. Yeah, of, but the but the thing is that doesn't make it convincing. You know, in a world where the only way to take a photograph is to take a photograph, yeah, man, you did that, right? You know, like why did you do that? But 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 in the world where you can make this trivially, like people are just like, yeah, like why would anyone make that? And and that sort of you know, the only place where that transition is unclear. And then, you know that's sort of not the only answer because your answer is okay in a world where you're like okay there's no authenticity like where does the authentic come from and then you're like okay well you know 
how do I indicate the authenticity of a representation of my image? Well, I could sign it with a motherfucking digital signature, a technology that's been around since the 1970s. So, you know, like, like, and then if my parents get something, you know, or if your parents get something that's, you know, full 360 surround, you know, video of <laughs> doing this thing right and then you know what they, they they open up their browser like you know they check this they you know check open a metamask or whatever they check the signature you know and then if it's signed by you you know then you know they'll you'll have this conversation right and the conversation <laughs> is still probably be not why did you do this thing but you know how did these people get your key you know yes. but still right that's that's sort of what the what that's there for so you know these these you know I'm not as worried. All right, so, so that's a, okay. So that's a uh, bright uh, light. That is a silver lining on yeah. what people are perceiving as being a uh, horrible end to our freedom. Because the way that I heard it, yeah, the way that I heard it described is that once people cannot tell the difference between whether it's you or somebody else, and all of these things are being generated, then all of a sudden there's going to be a demand by the people to enact some kind of a digital ID system so that everybody who's going to be online is going to be able to be tracked so they could be verified that this is the uh, person now when you were talking about that signature from the 70s that sounds different from that digital id system and i just want to make yeah, it's sure just yeah like, it's just like a it's just like a blockchain wallet you know today think of it as you know uh, everyone has a blockchain id like and 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 the like the fact that you can't sign digitally sign a, a thing with your twitter handle is like I mean, there was a company that was helping you do that, but like they went out of business, right? You know, it's like, it's not a big, it's just not a civilizational scale problem. It just basically leads to a situation where actually you can't really demonstrate the reality of anything with just like one piece of video. And, you know, we're already familiar with passing through that transition. So I just wouldn't really worry about it. Some uh, comments over here, by the way, we have from the uh, great patron, $20 patron, by the way, patreon.com slash break the rules, made a Ronin deep fake gooning footage. So yes, that is uh, some of the things that uh, are going to be down the uh, pipeline here. Uh, God's dominatrix says Curtis Yarvin's head on Betty Page's body equals future. So mm -hmm. I know what you would make of that. Uh, but in general, guys, if you want me to read out the comments, be sure to sneed those super chats right now. The bar is empty because it's a new month. So we got to refill the sneeds. So anyway, going I from think that, reconnecting yeah. the spinal cord is really difficult. Indeed. Sorry, no, 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 definitely. So regarding uh, we talked about Peter Thiel, <laughs> uh, he seems to be a rogue elite if uh, that title could be applied to him. And as far as people who would want to prevent the things that I was just talking about, which you don't really think are going to happen that much as far as wanting to enact digital ID systems, wanting to uh, keep people, you know, like the whole WEF, eat the pods, live in the bugs type of scenario. Mm -hmm. Like, we have a few people, it seems, who are at least championing the idea of there being much more uh, human liberty in the world of tech. And then you have other people, for example, like at the WEF, uh, there was an article talking about how, um, I'm trying to see their names over here, uh, a U.S. representative uh, whose surname is Multan and a European commissioner VP, Vera Jorvora, at the WEF says illegal hate speech 
which you will have soon also in the U.S. I think we have a strong reason why we have this in the criminal law. So there are people who want to try and get European law when it comes to hate speech and all that enacted in the United States. And the concern a lot of people have is that Americans are getting lazier, they're getting stupider pretty soon, and they're not going to mind when a lot of their rights are going to be taken away. And then we seem to have like these rogue elites on the side who are going against that, but there don't there doesn't seem to be that much of them. Am I correct in how I'm seeing this or not? And if not, why? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think. It feels a little dramatic to me. I mean, you know, the like. I, I like. I, I think that there's a very natural tendency in sort of everyone's heart to want the world to be a Marvel movie. And like the reality is sort of much worse than that um you know the like the problem with being a sort of a rogue elite is that unfortunately the closer you get to the way that things actually work and the sort of the more that you see the inner circles of power such as they are the more you realize that or the more you certainly start to feel that there's really nothing at all that you can do about this system besides complain about it. And there's a simple reason for that, which is that the closer you get, if you talk to anyone who has come sort of in any way close to what looks from the outside, at like being the center of like power or importance or decisions in the modern world, they will all tell you the same thing, which is that the closer I got to that, the more I realized that it doesn't exist. And there's actually no there, there, there's no center. The world would be doing exactly what it is doing today, tomorrow, in 10 years, in 20 years. If the World Economic Forum did not exist, uh, the Bilderberg Group did not exist. You know, I mean, um, this is public information, Peter Thiel, was is or was i don't know on the steering committee at the bilderberg bilderberg group so you know maybe he's a, maybe he's a double agent rogue elite or something except why would he announce that right you know and the re the reality is it's just not even a marvel movie and and it's like everyone you know even someone like soros who i've obviously never met uh you know is like but have i talked to people who've talked to sora sure right you know and like and and you know the sort of the river of like the current of europe post-war western and eastern european thought that soros created looks like a muddy river and has had huge amounts of money thrown into it by Soros and the Open Society Foundation or its various tentacles is, you know, elected <laughs> district attorney of San Francisco and, and this and that and other thing. And, and yet, you know, it's such a small creek, even just Soros world in you know the river of the foundation world in the river of like post-war europe 
that you just can't imagine that even without you know soros really dumping money you know in a really respectable way into what he's been trying to do you can't imagine the world would be very different and so when it comes to basically saying okay maybe george soros has you know five let's say i'm a billionaire i'm a rogue elite you know george soros has like five times as much money as i i do but like george soros is world is like a small creek in the world of like the just the entire mass of like the carnegie rockefeller ford philanthropic university establishment monster you know that conquered the world in 1945 like you're just like what am i what am i gonna do? i just like why don't i just flush my fucking money down the fucking drain you know because like there's absolutely nothing that can no impact that can be made in any way against not only the sort of the strength but just the depth and the comprehensiveness of this movement and so you know when you look at you're like oh you know maybe maybe i'm a rogue elite i could give some money to well trump's kind of the whole thing he was great you know uh give some money to like ron DeSantis, who will basically like be like yeah but i like you know i got the college board to change their like ap african-american studies you know uh curriculum to be uh, more uh, libertarian uh, you know i mean <laughs> like the fuck man you know like like don't like you know uh but okay to, to be to be uh there. to be a bit of a counter uh, a counter pointer to what you're saying right now at the same time there do seem to be a lot more just like regular people normies whatever you want to call them who seem to be a lot more on board with the desantis way of looking at the world you know, they seem to be a lot more on board with this idea that we shouldn't have critical race theory in school, that we shouldn't have all these, uh, you know, I know the term woke has been used, you know, to, uh, to no end already, but uh, to have a much more uh, sensible way that kids are brought up. I think there's way more and people who just go out into the street and talk to them and they're right there. So I don't see that as being as uh, grim of an outlook just based on what's on a lot of people's minds. Joe Rogan they're is on, super popular. They're on, they're, on, they're on board, but like, where's the bus going? I mean, you know, like the, the like, like when, when you look at the history of, populism in the united states and i mean shit motherfucker you know history of populism in florida right you know like like you know let's say you're writing a history of florida in like 2075 right and you're like wow florida in 2075 would be a totally different place if not for the work of Governor DeSantis and how he changed. Like, you know, it, it's just like, basically, you're like, yeah, you got a lot of people on board. You know, what are they doing? They're on board. Okay, so they're on board. So where are they going? What what does it do to have a, a large number of people? What is the effect of that? It's okay, like, number one, they have a... Little, like Chinese monkeys thing where like as soon as like a hundred monkeys are on board, then like the stones begin to wash themselves or some shit, some such shit. I think there's a new age thing like, you know, like like on board. Yeah, they're on board. They're being I can give you an example. I can give you an example. One of the things that could possibly change now is that if you're a parent, you don't want your kids to go into an indoctrination center. So now maybe you're going to think of an alternative way to uh, uh, have them uh, be educated. That's one thing. I'm not saying that's going to change everything, but that's at least something that I think is on more parents' minds that have uh, that has been on the uh, minds of previous generations. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the thing is basically people who, you know, making it marginally easier to opt out of that system is like, okay, yeah, fine. You know, the thing is, what is the effectiveness of raising your kid's trad in this Society. I didn't say track. I, I didn't say track. They to come to a track. Well, yeah. So, so it doesn't have to know, be one extreme versus track. the other. Like, it doesn't have to be one stream versus the other. So, so let's go back to like the standard of like Florida in 2075 would be totally different. If you know, it's like you know, uh, here's the standard that we're looking at. Okay, so you've heard of it's a it's a country. Uh, it's in the middle. It's Iran. Okay, okay. now. You know, if I look at Iran in 2080, can I say Iran in 2080 would have been totally different if it were not for the actions of the Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979? Sure. Okay. Yes. Okay. That is a revolution. Okay. They had a revolution. That was the thing. Right. Now, you know, when I basically, so that's like a, a yardstick, right? So basically on, on that yardstick, we'll put uh, Khomeini as one, one meter, basically a yard. Okay, so basically on the scale of like the impact of the Ayatollah Khomeini on Iran, assuming that this impact is at a length of one meter, by the time Governor DeSantis retires, assuming he does not achieve higher office, which is obviously his aim, maybe even if he does achieve higher office, how, how long, how tall would you say the achievements of Ron DeSantis are in comparison to Ayatollah Khomeini? I don't think they would be as dramatic. Maybe I'm that, wrong. Maybe I'm wrong I in assuming the effect is going to Give me a number. Slow. Give me a number. Give me, give me a number. Uh, I'm bad at math. I can't really give uh, you a number here. If Ayatollah is a meter, I would put Ron DeSantis um, at about maybe 0.3 millimeters um and and maybe 0.3 millimeters and and might be as much as like 0.5 or 0.6 but like i think i can defend you know but what are you higher. basing that on are you basing that on how people's how perception change on how much chain actual change came to the political and social system of iran how different a country you know iran became as a result of this and the problem is not that like hey you know florida needs a new community i mean i've been to florida you know you could make a case either way you know but um, the uh, it would certainly be interesting but but the just in terms of like what really i don't like is that basically when i hear people talking about point say like 0.6 of a millimeter right and they're not talking about it as if it's a full meter they're talking about it as just like maybe a foot or two maybe like even six or seven inches maybe you know like and and i'm just like no like <laughs> this is not a foot or two you know and and no it's you know you're admitting that it's not a full meter but it's like you're using words that imply that it would be measured on the scale of a meter and when you use those words, you're using them falsely because approximately what you're supporting when you support Ron DeSantis in his crusade to purge Florida of woke or whatever is like nothing. And like the more people you have on the bus, the more people are being taken for a ride.
And and so, you know, the question of like, it's sort of a way to avoid dealing with the question of, hey, you know what, if Ron DeSantis really did have the power of the Ayatollah, what would he actually do? And nobody really wants to talk about that. And like, nobody really wants to talk about that. And the way we avoid talking about it is we avoid giving him any power at all because we know he's not serious, you know? I don't know. I, I don't think we avoid. I don't think people who understand the ramifications of what it means to have a dictatorship avoid talking about that. I think some people, like you said, just uh, don't consider that. But if you do consider well, it, that, you shouldn't really, you shouldn't I mean, imagine it's just DeSantis. Like when you're imagining there being some dictator in charge, you should imagine it being somebody like Putin. You should imagine it being somebody like Stalin. And that's the reason why people don't want that kind of power to be given even to somebody like uh, DeSantis or uh, somebody like Trump or so on and so forth. Well, you'd, you'll, do a, you'll do a little better with Khomeini because Khomeini <laughs> is like – uh, is is sort of the, the you know, a little more kind of sui generis. Putin and Stalin, for me, are kind of both defined in a way by their really. They both have basically a fucked up relationship with the United States, and so you know when we imagine sort of countries that the problem with basically looking at authoritarian states and. You know, uh, furthermore, I should say essentially that, you know, it sounds like we're talking about different things, but we're really not. And the reason we're really not is that, um, you know, Machiavelli discourses on Livy is has this very true and very valid point, which is that you can only see any any complete change in regime has to basically begin with a monarchy. It has to begin with the rule of a single party person. And so when you're basically saying you're against monarchy, what you're also saying is you're against regime change. Those things simply go completely together. And, you know, any change that you envision, therefore, if you consider thinking about regime change to be unacceptable, any actual change that you would envision should be in the context of what is actually possible within the evolutionary powers of the regime that you are in. And one of the th one of the copes that I find very, very irritating is when people imagine changes that our regime is simply incapable of and then attribute them to basically these normal political processes, which are in fact completely gunked up, or in my impression, completely gunked up. I would and, and okay. so 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 you know, essentially when when we when we imagine basically the idea of uh, you know, for example, let's say we were talking about a coup in Brazil, is a coup in Brazil a good idea? No, it is not a good idea, and this is why. God be praised, we do not see a coup in Brazil. We do not see a coup in Brazil because it would simply, the purpose of a monarch is to function, it, just to heal this incredibly dysfunctional, fucked up society. And a monarchical regime cannot function in Brazil because it would have to share power with the United States and this it could not do. And unless it allowed the United States to dictate its internal policies, 
it would uh, very quickly find itself, for example, cut off from banking services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and suffer a very quick demise. In cases like, you know, President uh, Bukele, for example, in El Salvador has, uh, I don't know if you've seen some of his recent press, this guy, Juan Grillo, who's Mexico's leading drug, um, uh, you know, war expert. He's like the, the you know, New York, New York Times is top, you know, journalist, like in the drug war, but he's a foreigner, so he's honest, right? And, and Grillo goes down to El Salvador and he's like, holy shit. Bukele has actually eliminated the gangs. And, and how did he do this? You know, was it with Bitcoin? No. Uh, how he did this was he lowered the murder rate of El Salvador, previously the global world capital of homicide, to I think it's actually now below the murder rate of Canada and uh, over an order of magnitude. And he did this um, by... Um, Praying, and no, he did this by constructing giant prisons and blocking up all the gangsters. And, um, and, and this was not, you know, at all, did not at all meet with the approval of the uh, Latin American Studies Department at Harvard or the State Department or anyone of this kind. Because basically, El Salvador is a tiny, shitty little country. He's so far been able to get away with this, right? Um, you know, Kagame has gotten away with it in Rwanda. You know, Kagame is actually, Paul Kagame in Rwanda is a uh, strong man. You know, normally we require Africa to be run by weak men, which is why Africa is such a shithole. Uh, Rwanda had this like genocide thing. Wait, what do you mean we though? Because right now China's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in Africa from what yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I when I say we, I mean the, state, the U.S. State Department. And uh, obviously I'm not associated currently with the State Department. I just grew up as a State Department. But uh, normally, that's what all, that's what you know. Normal American media consumers mean when they say "we." They actually don't realize that they mean the State Department, but they mean the State Department. So um, we, meaning the international community, State Department, global public opinion, whatever. Um, you know, uh, apart from making this wonderful Ukraine thing happen, um, Slava Ukraine, Slava yeah. Giroyum. Uh, how's that working out for you? You know, um, we can. Um, well, we, look, we... if they if they send more weapons quicker, then we could already be done with this thing. But they've been dragging their toes on this whole thing. We'll get to Ukraine. Believe me, I want counterpoints uh, to come in here about that. I don't know where he is. But anyway, go on. Probably hanging out with contrapoints, but um, the, um, <laughs> that, that, you know, they're talking, it runs late, you know, <laughs> they're liking deeply, you know, and, and um, uh, the guy's got a wife and kids in Florida, but uh, anyway, uh -huh. many such, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm the worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, you know, international public opinion or whatever uh, basically gave Rwanda a pass to have Paul Kagame. And, you know, today I would be feel a lot safer walking around downtown Kigali at two in the morning than downtown L.A. at two in the morning. And Rwanda is kind of this success story of Africa. And it's a success story of Africa for one simple reason, which is that none of the usual suspects, you know, had the gall to go to Rwanda and start whining about human rights. So he's basically like, I'm going to make this country into the Singapore of Central Africa, which is, you know, more or less what he's done. I mean, you know, there's been some 
invading of neighbors and so forth. Well, I gotta, I gotta um, step in here. I gotta step in here because uh, you've said a lot of very interesting things that I gotta go over. So number one, when we're talking about there being this strongman dictator who comes in, arrests all the criminals, that is definitely not the worst part of it. The closest I could imagine, and I'm sure it's uh, not that close at all in comparison, would be Rudy Giuliani coming into New York City and doing what he did over there with the broken windows policy and so on and so forth. People don't want there to be crime, obviously. But uh, the question for me is... Many people do want there to be crime. There's well, okay, of... let's, let's skip those people. I'm just talking about sane people. So... Sane people don't want there to be crime, and they wouldn't have a problem with somebody within the scope of the law because, hey, if there's a criminal and the criminal is doing crime, we arrest the criminal. Like, that's no well, shit. Wait, 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 wait. You said, you said the, law. the law. The law. What is this law? What is this law, <laughs> law that you're talking about? Because, you know, the thing is, I don't see, like, I've looked, you know, up and down for, you know, this law, and all I see is basically some. Um, you know, uh, college professors in uh, black polyester robes, um, you know, uh, banging little, little, little instruments on their desks. But I don't see any law like, you know. So if you're talking about the law not being enforced, I wouldn't say that's the problem with the law. I'd say that's the problem with the law not being enforced. Same thing with liberalism. I wouldn't say the problem with liberalism is liberalism itself. It's when liberalism is not being implemented. So, so the question so, is, like, so what we... you're telling me is the, the problem with my, um, my aunt is that um, she doesn't have balls, and therefore she's not my uncle. <laughs> well, uh, let's uh, le le let's let's keep uh, you know uh, like 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 you know this this is a very very platonic you know view of ideals here. I'm basically like you know. Oh, well, we have to have I, some ideals to live by. Like that's that's the other thing, by the way. What I think makes America, and I'd say like the Western world, very special is that we got to a point where we don't necessarily need to have the threat of our hands being chopped off in order to stop us from uh, stealing something. And when I'm saying us, I'm saying people who are civilized citizens of the United States who had good values passed on from their parents and so on and so forth. There are obviously of US, what percentage of U.S. citizens would you say that represents? I'd say that represents a pretty big percentage, you know, like yeah. regular you, people who go on with their lives. Yeah, I don't know me, the number. Me, I'm bad at math. I don't know. I don't. You give me the number. You seem to know. All, you seem to know all the facts. Give me the I don't number. Have the same, but I don't have the same definitions as you. I'm. I'm trying to use. But you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like. I'm talking exactly about like just regular law-abiding people. You know, maybe sure. they have some. You know, a little like marijuana problem here and there. You know, maybe there's like some infidelity going on. But generally speaking, they're like normal people who wouldn't really think of just like stealing something or uh, murdering somebody or you know raping or whatever. So for those people, I. Say they reached a certain level of civilizationness, for lack of a better word, where you don't really need to threaten them with, uh, you know, like a large executioner with like an Arabian blade in order to stop them from uh, well, doing know, that kind know, what's, of stuff. What's funny, what's funny is that that's actually one of the reasons why we endure such awful government in this day and age is that there are so many of these populations that are simply so easy to govern. And really, you know, the best test of a forum, the best test of any engineering system is not how it works on the easy problems. You know, let's go to Iceland, for example. Iceland, ever been to Iceland? Like, you can govern Iceland pretty much any fucking way you want. Right. You know, you can say, hey, Iceland, we're all going to vote on what, you know, what, what kind of shark to have for breakfast. And it'll like work. Right. You know, uh, one of the things I got into, you mentioned earlier, my uh, my discussion with with Ben Burgess. One of the things we you know, one of the places we got into was um, 
for some reason we were talking about uh, Haiti. And as you may know, I, I can't, you know. Um, You've been uh, hating on Haiti? I have not been hating on Haiti. <laughs> I'm very sensitive and sympathetic to the plight of Haiti, which currently actually, I would say Haiti is a democracy, but it actually, or it's not a democracy in a, in a very unusual way, which is that it currently has no elected officials. Uh, in fact, there's sort of some legacy ministries there there's a haitian deep state mm -hmm. of course you know and there's also a barbecue really, right the uh, barbecue, leader barbecue right 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 you know and so basically for some reason i was you know became focused on getting ben burgess who i guess he's a professor somewhere um he's like a that's right he's like a white professor at, at an hbcu which must be interesting he also works at the young turks oh he does yeah that, that doesn't surprise me and um the and 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 for some reason I, I became focused on and I actually did persuade him to claim that the solution for Haiti or one of the things that would help better the condition of Haiti just to make it more like Norway's Norwegian social policies in particular the idea that Haiti should have a higher minimum wage and you know uh, for example that and the effects you know of a like twenty dollar an hour minimum wage on Haiti where you know, <laughs> you know, one I, I, I forget. I, I don't think I got him to actually quote a number as to what the Haitian minimum wage should be, right? You know, and meanwhile we have this country ruled by barbecue, right? You know, and and the like, the idea of the early 20th century that we sort of learned something about how to govern humans that we didn't know 500 years ago. I, you know, I was just. Um, looking uh, for a slightly unrelated reason i was going to quote the work of axel oxenstierna i'm pronouncing this wrong um who uh basically governed uh, uh the entire nation of sweden for the first half of the seventh 17th century and um oxenstierna's most famous quote i think is um he said this in latin which i'm not going to reproduce he said um you know um who knows with how little wisdom the world is governed and and the the uh you know i i suspect of course we could say that we in 2023 now know how to govern the world very very wisely and so when we look at chancellor oxenstierna and we say well of course wow you really didn't realize that you didn't know anything about how to govern people despite ruling sweden for 50 years but the average american citizen uh, you know, who may have some marijuana and infidelity problems, uh, you know, obviously because he's an American and part of America, you know, knows much more than Chancellor Oxenstierna, who is an, an authoritarian like Putin or Stalin um, about how to, you know, govern the world. Like, I just don't find that credible. Right. You know, and and like and, and no, so, just to be clear, I never said they know how to govern. I just said that they are going to be less likely to steal and rape and do horrible things. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. They're, yeah. They're, but they're very they're very easy to govern. But the question of basically when I look at, you know, when you sort of you talk about like law, you know, law, like it's completely impossible to distinguish between sort of law in the sense of common law, law in the sense of statute law, law in the sense of regulatory law. You know, the, the, everything that makes it impossible to change the system at all is law. 
And so basically when you ascribe, you know, like Ron DeSantis, okay, what's he plan to do about the Civil Rights Act of 1965 as interpreted by the Supreme Court, right? You know, if you read Christopher Cal Caldwell's book, Age of Entitlement, Age of Entitlement which, yeah. which is a little weak in some ways, uh, but, but I think pretty, pretty solid in, in its own period, you, you basically realize that actually Ron DeSantis has no power over these things ultimately, and what he's doing probably violates federal law. He is, in fact, as the New York Times will tell you, you know, like, you know, a, a Southern, just another in a long tradition of like Southern book burning corn home politicians who will, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, raise some money from from the boobs and then, you know, disappear. And like, I can't really fault the perspective of the New York elite on this practice because that description is entirely accurate and and it's become sort of even more and so to like basically say when you basically sell the people who support ron DeSantis on the idea that they're doing something when in fact they're doing nothing and rather than learning from donald trump they should be learning from the ayatollah ruhollah khomeini um you know if they want to be serious like and if they don't want to be serious they should just shut the fuck up grill stay out of the way of the crazy you know and and yeah if you get a tax subsidy to not send your kid to public school that's great i, I bet that most people make that choice sort of irrespective certainly doesn't hurt like, you know, are there, kind of, are there certainly some, some Band-Aids that someone with the power mm. and energy of Governor DeSantis can throw on the problem? But the thing is, you're basically throwing Band-Aids on melanoma, you know, and, and like understanding... I, would, I wouldn't describe them as Band-Aids. Here's how I would describe the mass. I would describe it as spraying some acid on certain parts of the law that, let's say, have crept up and may not really be as good for the future of the country where that's, right. that's right if you're that's right so what you're doing what you're doing is actually to you're taking your sandpaper to the <laughs> melanoma i think that's really the proper description so the result yeah. of taking sandpaper to the melanoma is first like it gets these horrible black spots which you don't know what they are to look like normal sores okay that's good um the black is really it's really disturbing right it makes you feel that something really bad is going on in your body uh, whereas in fact you feel fine, you just have some little black spots, right? So that's the first thing that sanding does. The second thing that sanding does is it irritates the area. By irritating the area, by creating basically a sense of conflict, what you're actually doing when you're basically Governor DeSantis is that you're not just running your own scam, you're also helping the New York Times run their scam because you're basically being sold the subscribers of the New York Times as a basically southern fried peasant with a pitchfork who is going to come into their crib and like skewer their babies and force them to believe in Satan. And you are basically the level one thing that that I really wish the people who don't run this country understood about the people who run this country is how wildly afraid they are of shit that don't amount to nothing. And so basically, just as when you are a DeSantis supporter, you're not just being used to enrich Ron DeSantis and his friends and give them the career. You're being used to keep the New York Times in power. 
you're being used to keep the New York Times in power by a homeostatic process by which either you're completely toothless fanged fake opposition and you don't matter and you supplant anything that could matter and you don't do anything. That's great. That's a traditional Republican Party. DeSantis has a good bit of that DNA if you look at who's supporting him. But also, if you actually do show some little tiny hint of a little fang or a little prick or, you know, something that's not entirely cuddly, um, the result is that basically you were broadcast as the reason the supporters of the regime need to support it. You are the deluge in Apremois de la deluge. And so basically you are a vital tool basically serving as an enemy you may be only 0.3 millimeters tall, but they will paint you as at least five or six decimeters. Unless Maybe you're not Ayatollah Khomeini. Unless, so, okay, okay, uh, go unless, on. Unless, unless you have an that, unless, you know, unless the people who are residing in New York City, I'm talking about the people who actually start valuing the future of their children. You know, the ones who they don't want to go into all these induction indoctrinatory schools unless they start becoming the antibodies they unless they the, start becoming the antibodies to start fighting off this infection along with the acid treatment everything desantis is doing is scaring them and basically everything everything someone like desantis is doing basically by any kind of identification these people actually yeah you know the first of all when you look at the coalition in new york that voted for julian are you in new york are you in new york yes person? yes yeah, when you look at the coalition in New York that voted for Giuliani, here are basically, you know, the reasons why that is in a way a phenomenon of the past. You know, number one is that it's while there was definitely some swing in, you know, what I call dark elves, people who are, you know, socially elite, but tired of the bullshit. Uh, you know, the, is that a certain number of votes? It's a certain number of votes. You know, maybe under Giuliani, I don't know, I haven't studied this. You know, maybe it was 10% of Giuliani's votes. And then the core of it, of course, was fucking Archie Bunker votes from fucking Staten Island and fucking Queens. Okay, you know, you know those fucking people, right? Uh, you know, I'm living pretty close to them. With them. I, I live pretty, I'm in uh, Long you Island right close. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you don't, you don't hang out with them. You're not, you know, friends with them. You don't run in the crowd. You know, you don't talk like that. Well, I you went know, to Catholic it, school, so I'm. Oh, I'm you familiar. went to Catholic school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why'd you go to Catholic school? You're not a. Are you? Like, no, I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Catholic at all. But when we uh, emigrated from uh, the Soviet Union from Russia, uh, my mom saw like first I went to a Russian Orthodox school, but then my mom thought, you know what? This Catholic school it's very nice. Like uh, you know the teachers are nice and it's a good atmosphere. It's not like these crummy public schools. So I'm gonna put my son in this Catholic school, and that's why I ended up going there until about fifth grade, and then I went. To, then I was homeschooled after that. And I went to Lee Strasberg Theater Institute where I uh, was uh, learning acting. But that's uh, besides the point. Yeah, I'm sure that's uh, that's a super conservative environment. But um, <laughs> the... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Well, my uh, I, I asked because my girlfriend went to a Catholic school in New York as well. Uh, but she's actually from the, that kind of background. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but those people are still around, and those as far as as far as the dark elves, as far as the dark elves, if you recall the uh, lore, I don't know if you played Age of Wonders back in the day. That was a favorite of mine. But I dark elves, dark elves are not uh, born; they're made. So yes, dark elves are not born; they're made. And and you know, regular elves are just born, right? The problem is basically, anytime you do something 
where you basically get the harbots to march up and down shaking their pitchforks and screaming about elves you make all elves very nervous and you basically fuck with my dark elf recruiting program and so basically like the problem is that that the way of when you basically raise the banner of whatever your issues or programs or whatever are when you're basically raising the banner of class war against the nobility, then you are behaving in a non-royal way. You are basically behaving like a fucking peasant revolt. And, you know, if you're a fucking noble in the 14th fucking century and the peasants are coming down the road with, like, pitchforks and torches and like all kinds of just indescribable farm implements you know and let's say you're a noble you know you're very modern you're progressive enlightened noble okay like you believe in treating the, like the peasants well like you don't believe in any of this drawdus and your stuff right you know but those motherfuckers come down the road you know waving their shit you're just gonna be like you know be like squire bring me my horse and you'll bestride your horse and you'll be like, Squire, bring me my sword. And then you'll be like, Deus Volt, and you'll go be all go off to like kill some fucking peasants, right? You know, and so the the shit, the like bullshit comedy bullshit that gets Ron DeSantis like votes from the panhandle of Florida, you know, uh, like the stunts, the whatever, the like, you know, it's like I feel like you know, Trump was just a much better actor than DeSantis. I mean, you've studied acting, so, like, you know that just you're watching the difference between a natural and a, like, a a clown, right? You know, he's a terrible actor. He's just, like, he's not, you know, how much screen presence does DeSantis have? How authentically does he come across? You know, when Trump was doing his, like, crazy Trump shit, like, you felt that Trump is always a method actor. Like he always, you know, he's a great actor. He convinces he convinces himself that it's real because he believes it, right? That well, because is because secret. in his youth there was this uh, pastor, very famous uh, guy who wrote all these books oh, about Norman Vincent Peale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he, exactly. he, he uses sure he uses he uses that 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 technique, uh, you know, too. Not you know, but yeah, I mean, he's like he 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 manifests, you know, um, but. <laughs> Like DeSantis just doesn't have that sort of like, but this, you know, like, like this, these, these just issues are just like obvious BS. And again, they are okay. They could be worse. They could be like Anita Bryant and her like, you know, oranges, no gay oranges in 1981, <laughs> you know, you know, campaign. Maybe that could turn off Manhattan more than Ron DeSantis does. That I don't think people part. have been but, turning off that much from Ron DeSantis in New York City. No, no, the people... no. They, ha they just haven't been they haven't been turning on like, you know, no, you've got to actually like. But in know, OK, in order to turn on, there has to be more pressure that's going to be applied to them from the horribleness that's going on around them. And I think it's starting. Mm, you disagree no, this is still this is still a lib model of revolution uh you know all lib models people don't revolt you know people don't revolt because conditions are unacceptable that's a myth uh you know uh, they you know okay more at the high end than at the low end if you starve people they'll be very docile 
They won't revolt at all. I'm not talking about um, revolting necessarily. Uh, no, though. no, no, no. But you're talking. You're no. You are talking about because you're talking about a revolt by the dark elves. You know, against their demonic masters, right? It does you know, not necessarily have to look like a revolt. It could be done in a well, different way. For example, sure, if, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. very true, very, okay. very true. But the thing is, you know, you know, the you know, the point is that basically, like for me, this is like a, it's like a different meaning of the phrase, own the lips. Okay, like you're not like oh, trying to own them in like a World of Warcraft sense by like like you know getting their like jibs all over the dungeon, right? You know. You want to own them in that they actually become your possessions. Like you want to take possession of them, right? You want to own them. That's what owning means, right? And so in a way, you know, to, for me, to own the libs is to seduce the libs. Like we want them, like it's, it's almost like a sort of, you know, like like a pimp thing, right? You know, sure. you basically, you want to turn them out. You want to basically make them realize that like, a way of living in which they're like they leave their family and friends behind and are principally attracted to you right that this is something they should do the uh, charlie madison approach you could say improper life course right you know and so the thing is that when you're trying to like seduce the libs right you know you want to can you say oh yeah i offer you safety i offer you like sure yeah, you, you know, don't phrase it in terms of like, oh, you know, I'm going to help you like complain about this. You know, who, who the fuck? I mean, you've been to New York. You live in New York. You know, like it's not cool to like complain about crime. You have to like deplore it at a certain level. Right. You know, like the, the thing that's most unacceptable in lib society is any kind of politics that's about me. You know, like, oh, your politics is standing up for yourself. I see. Oh, and people like you. Oh, that's really gross. Have you ever thought about like caring about others? Right. You know, and and so the thing is that that and imagine them saying that, by the way, to like a group of minorities or like a minority coalition. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, that's a different, you know, that's a different, different, different module. But 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 the like the, you know, I mean, the basics of marketing, all marketing is the seduction, right? You have to actually offer people not what you want them to want, not what they want to want, but what they actually want. And these are three, like, different things. And, you know, what a libs want, you know, what do you want them to want? You want them to want, like, the same things that all human beings want. Okay, bam, wrong. Um, yeah, they have that at a level. You can activate that at a level, but the thing is, it's never going to be the sort of dominant, like romantic engagement mode. Um, you can want the things that they claim to want. Um, that's a great way. Republicans do that all the time. You know, they're like, what do libs want? They want more black people. Let's uh, elect a black senator, right? Isn't the, isn't the, you know, and, and like, like, okay, so, so, but what they actually want is to matter and feel powerful. Offer them a way to matter and feel powerful in a way that isn't their current pathology and they'll love it. There could also be the angle of people not wanting to experience a certain amount of unbearable sensation. You disagree that mm, no, I'm, no, I'm not no, talking no, about no. like the peasants starving. I'm talking about no, no. You'll have no? you'll have you know there was this this famous horrible fucking case somewhere in the Midwest where um you know some guys like you know 
beautiful Aryan daughter. It's like this Nazi caricature of a case. Like, like he's she's walking down the road and she's just like assaulted and raped in in, in the most horrifying way and killed by just like a random immigrant farm worker. And, and like this guy, this woman's dad, who you being a rational Russian person basically is like the problem here is like, you're just, you're too rational because it's like this, like this Russian rationality that I just like does not jibe with the American soul, which is fundamentally Puritan. And so this is an Iowa, maybe I think it's Iowa. It's part of the Midwest where there's a lot of, Jordan blood has gone there, you know, and they're all kind of soy faced. And like, you know, you'll see this again and again, where someone's loved one is, is the victim of some like horrendous immigrant crime. And as a result, they become basically a pro illegal immigration activist, because that's the only way that they can resolve the problem. You know, they're basically like, this was awful, but it would be much more awful if we were to allow hatred and bigotry to use this as an excuse for hatred and bigotry and the the um um you know adrian shelley who's um she she was an actress and director who directed one film which was like an oscar winning film she had the sort of independent win film win uh she had a husband who was like a wall street guy um, they were renovating the apartment. She was alone in the apartment. A random illegal worker came in the apartment, found her in the shower, killed her Norm Bates psycho style. Um, and this husband, gigantic lib activist for like more illegal immigration, essentially tolerance, it would be a disaster if this were to become a justification for hatred and bigotry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People don't react the way they want you want them to react. And you can't basically seduce them by getting them to react in a way that it is not natural for them. Actually, the natural way for them mm -hmm. to react is, you know, in their status as nobility, which is why you want to attract them in the first place their natural way to react is to react in an aristocratic way. So you have to offer them something that is fundamentally aristocratic, not this peasant like, oh, it's just about me. Actually, you know, this dude feels like a huge freaking martyr because like, you know, yeah, he actually, he took one for the cause, right? You know, why would he abandon the cause? He will become much more dedicated to the cause. Also, there's other chicks, right? You know, I mean, like, like, Wait, yeah. so, so what you're saying is that you would encourage the sense of honor in self-martyrdom among no, the would-be no, no, dark elves. You would not. Not, you, not even no. honor in self-martyrdom, but much more crass things even. Like the, the you know, those are actual noble, you know, we're getting warmer here because these are actually noble tendencies, right? But the thing is, they're, they're actually, you know, you're restricting yourselves here to tendencies that are actually noble, right? In the like moral sense. No, I'm talking about ambition, and pride and avarice and, and you know much more much more basic motivating things all right, so, all right. let's talk about ambition for example okay okay so you know you talk about monarchy well uh, monarchy would be like putin well you know you know neighbor have you heard of fdr right you know fdr is the last American with the uh, with the detention camps for the japanese fdr yeah with the new deal right you know so yeah. so i mean you know 
Thank Ellie God Ellie he died. Ellie. Thank God he died. That could have ended up way worse than oh. uh, it did. I, yeah. I, 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 in a way, I would he had lived forever, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> why? So, why? So, so FDR um, was the um, – what the hell did I about to text him? Um, FDR was basically through a number of uh, you know complicated circumstances, some of involving a skullduggery on his part. I'm not really a huge FDR stan, but let's talk about this. But I'm also not a lib. You know, let's talk about what FDR means to libs. So let's say you're kind of a member of like the like core lib elite class. What college? Well, you uh, went to Harvard. Yeah, you went to Harvard. So, so you graduated from Harvard in 1935, and you studied the new field of economics. And then you're just like, oh, I've graduated. I had better find a job. And how do you find a job? You, um, you're like, well, I suppose I know someone who knows Tommy Corcoran. And you call your friend, and he's like, okay, I think we can do something for you. And... Um, a week and a half later, you get a call, um, and maybe it's Tommy Corcoran himself, and the call is like, uh, uh, we love you. We'd love you to come to Washington. And you're like, what will I be doing? And the voice on the other end of the phone is, I don't know. We'll figure it out when you get here. And you get there, and they show you a desk, and they're like, here's $5 million. Go electrify Arkansas. And that's a bit of a stereotype, but the thing is, what that should remind you of is, or what it reminds me of anyway, sitting here in California, is sort of the experience of like someone who maybe got hired at Facebook in 2005. And, you know, same, so, so FDR was a monarch, every startup is a monarchy, and FDR was, a, a, the New Deal was a startup government. To the extent that it couldn't work around old structures, old laws, it would build new agencies is a lot of how it got things done faster. You know, certainly when you look, for example, at like the Manhattan Project, to me, that's like peak New Deal is the Manhattan Project. And if you look at Manhattan, you'll notice that it runs exactly like a startup down to the two co-founders and, you know, the technical and the organizational co-founder. And, you know, the New Deal is full of things like I've just been reading um, the diaries of FDR's interior secretary, Harold Ickes. Um, I'm reading about this wonderful idea of sending the Jews to Alaska, which really should have been done. And FDR vetoed it. And um, even though he didn't veto it, he shot it down. And um, the like when I look at how FDR's cabinet operated, it was like the C-suite of a software company. It was just like an executive organization, which is not how the federal government functions today. And if you got that same degree from Harvard in 2015 and you wanted to work in DC, you'd like maybe like go intern on the Hill or something and be doing like constituent service. And then like, you know, in like maybe in a couple of years when you mm. like got your big boy pants that let you talk to a lobbyist. You know? Wait, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I understand all that, Curtis. But if we're getting to the meat of this whole thing, what you're basically talking 
talking about is a double-edged sword. Because on one hand, as a dictator, you have free, or as a monarch, you have freedom, complete freedom, or relatively complete freedom, to do a lot of wonderful, great things to help a lot of people out. On the other hand, you also have the power to screw a lot of people up, to end a lot of lives, to implement the uh, uh, no pest policy, a la Chairman Mao, to put people in detention camps. Yeah. To do all so, kinds so, of stuff. so when we when we look at when we look at twentieth century basically monarchical structures you know what we can't first of all you know i am by no means devoid of existential critiques of fdr himself i would say that i uh, there are ways in which fdr is as guilty as any of them that we don't really understand and you know i don't really want to get into the downsides of FDR, um, what I would say is that what you're seeing in, like, until you understand why this shit happened in the 20th century, which is not the century of monarchy, and not the 17th century, which is the century of monarchy, um, you have a, a puzzle which sort of demands a solution before you make any indictments based on it because what you see in the 20th century it's in just this incredibly unique century it's a really non-normal century because of the amount of simply technical and like strictly military transitions that go on in this period moreover the general shape of the period is what is responsible for for the essentially malignant nature of essentially all autocratic regimes after Napoleon, and even including to some extent Napoleon, because all of these regimes are in a very clear sense rebels against an Anglo-American global condominium. And so what we're doing when we think about the nature of everything from Putin, even Stalin, of course, who's aligned with the, you know, Anglo-American world, but never intends to be its tool. What you're seeing is the sort of strange chaos of this world revolution, which is much more top down than I think most people think. And, you know, we can get into that in the context, maybe actually a conversation about the Ukraine is the best way to get into the nature of that system, because I actually think that the contest of the Ukraine, you know, versus Putin, basically, you're seeing tropes that are two centuries old. And, and the like those tropes I think for me make more sense two centuries ago, but they're perhaps easier to process and parse today because they're so incredibly dumb. And the like the very dumbness of makes them legible. And I think that's a useful and interesting change. But, you know, as far as basically FDR's regime being functional, it was certainly functional enough to conquer the world. Like, you know, <laughs> and and, you know, I mean, they thought that they did not see Stalin as a peer. They thought of Stalin as a satellite. And so they actually thought that the order that they created by winning World War II was a global order. It did not turn out to ever function really as a global order. But 
that was up to Stalin, not up to DC. So there is an interesting thing that I always consider when this is brought up, and I think it's brought up in a way less elegant way by other people on 4chan than the way that you've described it right <laughs> now, which is it, uh, it has to do with what you mentioned about the United States uh, becoming the uh, becoming a member of the, no, rather, the United States adopting the Gorbachev doc Doctrine. This is something that you talked about in the last stream yeah. uh, with Counterpoint uh, back before he was uh, dating ContraPoints. But yes. uh, in this Gorbachev doctrine, the problem for me uh, immediately was that who would have the military dominance in this case? Is it going to be China? China is not going to be protecting us. We don't want China to protect us. We were protecting Europe since World War II uh, was over. So in regards to what the United States end up doing, like whether the United States goes into some kind of military adventurism, I completely agree with you as far as respecting indigenous cultures and not screwing around in places we should not the be prime, screwing the, around. The prime, the prime directive. Sure, prime policy. directive. But, yeah. and this is a big but, this is a Lizzo but, is that when, <laughs> when we're talking about a country like Russia, and I know that you're going to say, well, this was uh, in history all the time, you know, this expansion, so on and so forth. Right now, there is a very important and very unprecedented thing happening in the world, which is, is a country going to be able to get away with threatening nukes on the surrounding countries? And what is the response going to be of those countries to this threatening of the nukes? And if it's going to be the same response as the very World War One tired continental nations were to a rising Germany right before World War Two, then Putin is not going to stop, not even because he doesn't want to stop, but because the position of power that he is in, his image being influenced by the way that people see him as this expansionist leader and forgetting about all of their problems with their health, with the uh, plumbing issues, with you know shit running down the rivers of uh, what was uh, temporarily recently called Stalingrad again for the uh, anniversary. They'll, they'll forget about all of that, and this is something coming from a Russian who's had experience with other Russians. They'll forget about all of their problems as soon as Putin takes more territory. So he has two no questions. choice. He must two, take territory. Yes. Two questions. Two questions left. Um, one is a quiz. What is the what is what in what year did the Russian military go farthest to the west? I don't know what year. Uh, no, as a Russian, you have to be able to answer this question. I'm going All to right. disqualify your uh -oh. Russianist. Uh oh. Far, answer the question. Far, farther to the west. All right. Let me think. Uh, I mean, I could say possibly uh, World War Two. Would that be the correct answer or no? Or did I screw up? I screwed up probably, didn't I? Okay, what is it? What's the answer? Go farther, farther back, farther back. Farther back. I mean, look, there was the Russian Empire for talking about Catherine the Great and all that who kept going, you know, in the... Um, in the uh, uh, Crimea region and so on and so forth. Like, there was an expansion that's, that's going so, on. That's so, yeah? not west. Oh, right. All right. I don't know, Curtis. Tell me. We have to keep the stream 18, going. 18, 1815, there were Cossacks in the streets of Paris. Uh, the word um, uh, after the, the defeat of Napoleon, Russian soldiers swept all the way to Paris. And they were fighting on the way, too. And, and the, um, the word bistro, 
okay. comes from the Russian word for quickly. And that's oh, bistro, bistro. Ah, yeah, that's why you say bistro. You say bistro because basically the fucking Russian fucking cavalry <laughs> were on the streets of fucking Paris. And they fucking didn't understand any of this Escoffier shit, fucking cream sauces, whatever they wanted food, and they wanted it fast. Well, no, hold and, on. Let, let's get one thing straight, though. They were Russian. Because when you're talking about Russians back then, they were fucking Europeans. They might as well be well, Europeans. Oh, okay, okay, They were okay, Europeans. Okay, okay. LARPing is Russians, but go on. Okay, so, well, not the fucking cavalrymen. I mean, the officers, sure. You know, the officers certainly were, yes, they were very much. Um, That's what counts. They were, of course, of course, of course. And, you know, the kind of the, the, the tragedy of Russian civilization in the 19th century is that it begins as a single, you know, you know integrated intellectual aristocracy. And it ends with this division between the aristocracy and the, uh, Allah, forgive me for uttering their name, the intelligentsia. And, and the, uh, which side of that you're, are you descended from Lev? Or you? Or you're not Jewish, are you? I am. I'm a half you Jewish, are. half yeah. Russian, but my Russian yeah. side is also part of the. Uh, it's half Ukrainian side, so my dad's mm -hmm. side is Ukrainian, and on my mom's side, it's half Russian nobility and uh, half Jewish. Got it. Got. It. And does that anyone in your family actually speak that Ukrainian shit? Like, no, no, no not really. No, it's no, been no, a long no. time. No. Yeah, no. But we do have relatives uh, who were living in Ukraine who recently had to evacuate. But that's a. Uh, all right. So so, you know, Russia has been a participant, you know, a participant in European civilization for quite some time, including, of course, the uh, defeat of Napoleon. My second question is, uh, why did Putin in 2014 not take the whole Donbass or even all of, of the Ukraine? When this was before NATO had spent eight years. Equipping I, could, I could tell you exactly. UAF. I could tell you exactly why, because then it would be his responsibility. By having stations in Donbass which were contested, what he's basically give, uh, creating a situation where now you have a thorn on the side of uh, the people that want to get out of Ukraine, and now they're stuck with this tumor that they don't really know what to do with because now you have all these people that are being siphoned in from Russia. So wait, and, you, wait, 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 yeah. wait. You were telling me just earlier that he had this... Hitler-like desire for conquest, but now he seems to just want to put thorns in people's signs? Temporarily. Like, temporarily. There's only so much you could do at one time. So first, and here's the other thing about Putin, by the way. You don't think he he's kicking these... himself for not having solved this much easier problem eight years ago? No, because look, you take several steps forward and then you see what happens. So for example, Putin wanted to take uh, Southern Ossetia back in the day. Remember what happened? The big arms, the big bad United States uh, military industrial complex uh, came in and made sure that he did not go forward. So with him, he wants to see how much he can take at a certain point, and if he is not, uh, if he's not uh, pimp slapped away, then he's going to keep taking more and more and more. And there's no way out of that. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, basically the actions of a very normal European um, statesman, uh, to be honest. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, when I look at the situation, I see, like, you know... Nor normal for which century? The 17th. I don't know any other century, any normal century, you know, and and in you know even basically, it's like when you sort of 
there's kind of the 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 sort of anglo-american narrative of like the the sort of the former the foreign ogre which was kind of used if you look at contemporary reporting of like napoleon napoleon is treated this way sort of hitler is treated this way mm, world war one the hun the hun you know there's a sort of way of thinking about foreign policy which like when you looked at the way that the germans in world war one actually thought about foreign policy and the law of nations it did not have any of this sort of playing to the crowd feeling there was no idea of like we're gonna have regime change in england and put a hohenzollern prince on the field on you know there's no sense of like it really being an ideological war <clears throat> to the german to the losing side in that war it's very much an 18th century like cabinet war it's basically a war that is sort of a like you know continuation of kind of austria's sort of almost lawsuit against serbia uh, serbia actually did we later found out what the austrians were accusing of them you know what you, you know what my favorite fact about world war one is what? you should go verify this after this because you're not going to fucking believe this so you've, you've heard of serbia Sure. You've heard of Servia. Oh, no, no. You were talking about this last stream. I, I yeah, know what you're going to say. Yeah, they changed the name of the fucking country, you know, for yeah. basically PR purposes, right? And, and well, Russians you know, are still called Slavs, by the way. That was the... Yeah, uh, yeah indeed, 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 indeed. Well, you know... The yeah, left. from the Ottoman, yeah. Ottoman Empire slavery back in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, like... They changed the fucking name of the country for the purposes of like PR in the West. And this is how much when I see something like, you know, the Ukraine or like for me, for example, in the, you know, you know, about the Russian role in the revolutions of 1848. Right. All right. Right. Like, well, you know what happened? Uh, I'm trying to remember, but go on. Try, uh, so basically, basically in Hungary, they had one of these. So all around, basically in 1848 on all around Europe, they have these like proto color revolutions where everybody is like, you know, we're our own people. We need national self-determination because Woodrow Wilson is about to be born. Uh, you know, uh, we're Hungary and we're Hungarians and our Hungarian, you know, ethnicity is very important. We're Polish and we're, you know, not not content to be like subjects of the czars and and, you know, everywhere, basically, or sometimes these would be separatist movements or they would be nationalist movements like in Italy like with Garibaldi, like we're all Italians. We can't understand each other. But like Ital Italy is not just a geographical expression, you know, as, as Bismarck says, it's a it's a country. We must be a nation. Right. You know, and. So whether they're separatist or and they're all sort of animated by this like romantic era, you know, democratic revolutionary, you know, thought they're all like they all sound like Shelley, basically, and they're wildly popular with England and America, but especially England, because England's all that matters then. And England matters for a couple of reasons. It has a lot of money and it has an awesome navy. And one of the problems, for example, that the Poles had in the 19th century is they never, they had, I believe, three of these attempts at a romantic revolution in the 19th century, and they never had any luck at all, unlike the Italians and the Greeks who did 
rather really rather well and the problem was that they hadn't looked at a map and so because they hadn't looked at a map they didn't realize that they didn't have a coastline and as it turned out what really made a nation at that time was a language plus a coastline <laughs> because then <laughs> the royal navy could get involved and in protecting the rights of the innocent of course of course human rights whatever whatever we all desire to be free the rights of the little nations etc 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 and so like you know this crap has been going on for a long time so basically in any case what happens is that there's an attempt at a color revolution in Hungary and they kind of win for a while and then they get suppressed and they get suppressed with the aid of the leading reactionary power in Europe. That's right. Russia. The bear comes down and wipes out freedom in Hungary. And the Hungarian leader, Lajos Kathus, has basically flees, you know, isn't caught and sent to Siberia and, you know, and and flees and has these like deliriously popular like lecture tours in you know um in 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 london and on the east coast and you know later he goes to california becomes a gold mine. i'm just making that up but but uh you know i don't know what happens to him <laughs> but uh, i would like to think he went no, to but, california but, but you're talking about like a, but, but, okay. but it's the same phenomenon in that essentially this you have this weird setup that the normally in a normal you know, under normal conditions of political science, the support base of a regime is entirely within the country. And when the support base of a regime is outside of the country, for example, I was just reading, you could comment on this, Lev, you know, that all of these HIMARS strikes that the Ukrainian army are performing, they're all from coordinates fed by Western militaries. Actually, they just need a whole whole finger. Is that what you call them? Whole holes? Um, mm. You know, yeah, that's not, that's not really the, the polite way of saying it. That's sort of the kind of thing no, that, that, pe that it's, it's edgy, sort of like edgy saying, people. It's sort of like saying Moscow, but, but uh, you know, the, the, uh, um, in a yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's all kinds of the equivalent. Ho -ho yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's kind of like a curse word. I'm not really sure yeah, what the yeah, other yeah, one, yeah, yeah, the other yeah, one yeah. is. I'm, I'm sorry to use these slurs. I just, I, I just want no, to don't worry about it. You're, you're Reggie, but, but, you know, but, but they need, you know, in order to basically for the U S to kill Russians with plausible deniability, they need a whole, whole finger on the button, but you know, still the coordinates are coming from Fucking okay. Virginia. No, right. here here's the thing. My 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 answer to that is so fucking what? Cuz here's why. At the end of the day, this is very interesting what you're talking about with how a lot of these countries ended up forming. I could say a similar thing about the formation of Russia where most of the territory that Russia has, it's never even been fucking Russian. But that's besides the point. The important thing is that we have a power that's expanding right now that's threatening nuclear strikes if it isn't allowed to expand and acquire more territory by force. That's the situation wait, 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 that we have in front of us right now. Threatening nuclear strikes? Like the, what do you I mean? You know, Putin threatening the, the, nuclear the, well, strikes. Well, I mean... You know, if you if you, on Russian TV, they're constantly showing maps of the West and these little target areas that they're going oh, to be uh, targeting. But yeah, the yeah, point yeah, is, yeah, is that yeah. this is an, an unprecedented like this is an unprecedented thing that we have to face right now, and it sucks. I don't want to face it. It's unfortunate that this is in front of us right now. But this really is one of those things where are you going to consnead 
based on the fear that the enemy is going to drop the nuke on you, and then what leverage are you giving to the enemy? Are you then going to allow the enemy to acquire Poland, to acquire Lithuania? Where does it end? That's, I think, an important question. I think, I think the channel, uh, you know, the, 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 I think that basically in terms of, um, you know, anyone uh, short of the channel, uh, perhaps if they want to have an army, they can, um, they can do that. I think they're capable of it. And, and I really don't see, I think that, that when I look at sort of Putin's calculus, I believe him when he says he was effectively deceived by the West. Um, and, and, you know, I think that he's actually, I don't see any, like, here's why it's impossible for him to be deceived by the West. Here's why, because if we're talking about countries that go into NATO, it's not like NATO can force a country to go into NATO. There's a reason why countries want to go into NATO. So NATO can never make the promise in advance to say, well, these countries are never going to be part of NATO. It really depends on what goes on in history. And back when the USSR ended and when Russia, you know, corrupt as it was, was starting up, people in the West had a different idea of what may be possible with Russia. And of course, like, you know, the whole thing with the uh, economists coming in and all of that. Yeah, Yeah, the shock therapy and all that. So they were dealing with a big fat question mark. And at that point, they know, okay, like maybe, you know what, maybe we're going to uh, not have these countries uh, joining NATO, but there's no way they could ever promise that. There is no way NATO can ever promise to another country that other countries who are starting to be afraid... They did actually promise that. Th- then that promise means like, nothing. But, then they're just being well, dumbasses well, yeah, by promising yeah, exactly. something that doesn't and mean so anything. The, the thing is, when from the perspective of this is why it's so important to understand the perspective of the like enemies of the empire that you support. I'm not saying there aren't many great things about this empire many reasons to love it i grew up in its service it's like wonderful in many respects but like you should it's worth understanding its mo because let me shift the uh, how you do how do you feel about the um the u.s civil war do you have strong feelings any relatives fighting the u.s civil war no, but I saw a very interesting uh, documentary by uh, Razorfist, who I really want to get on the show soon, talking about how uh, fucked up Lincoln was and how he ended up uh, not getting rid of slavery in the North, only in the South, to screw around with the uh, Confederates and how he was censoring the press and how he was arresting people yeah, that wrote I mean, negative things about of, him. That's the sort of libertarian take on Lincoln. Like, I, it's, it's like, it's all true enough. Like, I don't think it really goes to the heart of like the fucked up shit that was going on there. And, you know, but, but the, the thing that I want to zero in on is basically the start of the civil war. Okay. Um, or as I like to call it, I came in for some criticism of this, but I like to use the European term, which is the war of secession. And the war starts when basically there'd been all this like, talk about separation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for many, many years. And one of the things that the most radical people, the people in the North always, and Lincoln included, always denied two things. One was that they had the right to outlaw slavery in the South, or that they planned any kind of holy crusade to abolish slavery. They pointed out repeatedly that they had no such right, 
and that they plan no such crusade. They also, you know, completely disclaimed um, any, there was no one who could be found to endorse a policy of what was called coercion, the idea that a state that's tried to secede could be kept in the union. No one would endorse that, that, that position in 1859. People would hint ominously a little at it, but it was accepted as outside the pale. What happens is the South, like, you know, is like, okay, you know, this like Harper's Ferry thing really freaked us out. Having a sectional president really freaks us out. We're going to go ahead, go ahead, going to go ahead and pull the trigger. And, but, you know, in some ways they sensed that this would involve a military conflict, but in other ways they were just like, how could you possibly object to this in a country that was founded on secession? And, you know, when states like Virginia, when they signed the Constitution, reserved the right, the idea that the Constitution authorized the federal government to raise troops to prevent a state from seceding would not have been accepted by any signer of the Constitution. Right. So the way in which this is done is with the whole Fort Sumter thing where basically it turns out that the federal government has some federal property up and down the coast of the South. Mm. They've got a fort down in Florida. They've got a fort in the harbor, um, you know, a very new under construction fort in the harbor of South Carolina's, you know, main thing. And it's like, basically it's like the South is like, okay, we're divorcing, you know, basically who's going to keep the cat, who's going to keep the dog. You know, okay, yeah, you bought me these underwear, but you, you want them back. So basically, the South quite reasonably regarded the federal government wanting a fort in the harbor of Charleston back as sort of like wanting the lingerie back that you gave your ex-girlfriend. Like, why would you want that? And also, it's obviously ours in spirit, even if you, yes, you have the receipts. Yes, I see the credit card bills. Yes, technically, it is your lingerie, right? You know, and and that was the response of the South. And so the response, the South sent a bunch of Confederate commissioners, basically ambassadors, although they had to be called commissioners because the, they were not recognized commissioners. Uh, like a baseball commissioner to Lincoln to negotiate or to the, you know, Lincoln and Seward who had more power at that time. He was the secretary of state. And what happened was that Seward told the commissioners that Fort Sumter would not be resupplied at the very same time that Lincoln was sending a force to resupply it. And they being Southern sort of men of sort of honor understood that basically if you're treated dishonorably, you have two choices. One is to prove that you actually value and need your sovereignty, and then your only choice is to fight. Or you can be a little bitch. And if you're a little bitch, what happens is that you'll find yourself being twice the little bitch, basically, next time. And so the sort of the casus belly of, like, we're just going to lie to your face and say that we're... Um, you know, we're going to give you this fort and then not. And the like the, the Confederates are just like, we have no choice but to basically fight or just sort of the falseness of that is this demonstration of aggressive intent. 
And so the feeling of stepping way, way, way back, forget Putin, you know, you can ar at least argue the merits of Putin. I don't think you can argue the merits of Kim Jong-un. Okay? You know, I, I don't think I can argue the merits of Putin. I could try, but it's hard, man. What if it's the demographic statistics, GD, like, you know, whatever, what? whatever, whatever, whatever. Putin whatever. makes You're a sure. lot of good money for Europe and the United States because all of that money goes from the Russians to uh, the rest of the world. But anyway. Fine, fine, fine. You, you know, you can be, you know, um, in the following in the great tradition of the Russian intelligentsia, I will not ask you to endorse the czar. Uh, I'm just asking you to understand its position. And I'm going to ask you to understand its position through the lens of somebody who is unquestionably nasty, who is Kim Jong-un. Okay, now that's an unquestionably nasty regime. It's not really an improvement on anything. It is a hereditary monarchy, although it remains an illegitimate one. And the illegitimacy, essentially, all of these autocrats that you talk about being bad, and they are bad in general, are autocrats in a century in which legitimacy, in, in a pair of centuries, in which legitimacy and democracy are synonyms. That's why North Korea is called the DPRK. It's a claim of legitimacy, right? Did we go through this last time? Yeah. And, and the, people and the, the, yeah. the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, right? Yeah. It's a claim of legitimacy. Like, there's nothing democratic about it. And it's obviously a hereditary monarchy. And, and so from the perspective of Kim Jong-un, like he is in a very vulnerable position because the whole world wants him gone. He would actually love to pull off the thing that the Chinese, if he has any, you know, he was educated in a Swiss boarding school, presumably he passed some tests. Um, if he would love to do the thing that China did of opening up its economy while keeping the political structure autocratic. The reason Russia did not do that, the reason Lenin shut down the new economic policy, for example, is that Lenin felt that the new economic policy was undermining the security of his monarchy, and which it was. And what Deng realized is that Mao, by being just such a fucking crazy fuck, had established such a secure regime that he could actually allow private merchants and private companies to operate without basically disrupting the fabric of political control. So it was actually the strength of that autocracy that allowed China to liberalize. Kim Jong-un is not strong enough to do that. He's not strong enough to do that because basically the rest of the world would rip him apart in 15 seconds if he like soften just a little bit. And so he's very much, you know, in this position of like riding the tiger. What the world should do to Kim Jong-un is basically be like, look, hey man, I don't know how we got here. Like fucked up situation. You're, you know, doubtless aware that's just like fucked up shit going on in your country. Like, here's a deal. Like, okay, here's like a suitcase, like it's a big suitcase. <laughs> this has got $10 billion in it. Right. Basically, in your pocket, you have the keys to North Korea. You're going to give me the keys. You're going to take the suitcase. You're going to go to the south of France and you're going to live well. Oh, Counterpoints has arrived. Yeah, we yeah. were just talking about we were, we were. Well, you know, the thing is, we just assumed like we knew about like your relationship with um, 
with contrapoints, and we just figured that a hot date had gone late. And um... that's that's actually precisely what happened. And by hot date, I mean a doctor's appointment with a gastroenterologist this morning because I'm in oh, my thirties. And that, well, it's it's all just checking stuff out and then running around and doing stuff with the family. So um, I do I do have a prior engagement, but I actually just wanted to come in personally and apologize for the screw up because I did so much enjoy our conversation last time. I was actually really looking forward to this. It's just family and life and all that crap. Cur Curtis, if you're if you're willing to come back to have the conversation where I'm going to reuse probably the same thumbnail because it's counterpoints is like in there in the center. I would love to do it again with counterpoints. Yeah, yeah, next time. yeah let's do it. I should I should go soon anyway because um, we've been doing this for for two hours. It's and, a lot. Of, it's and, a lot and, of fun though. And but, I, but it, it, it is a lot of fun. And I and um, I did want to apologize for missing those two hours. I was looking forward to them as much as I screwed it up. All right, next time, buddy. No, no, no worries at we all. Made, all we right. made we made fun of you. Never. But <laughs> that's uh, fine. <laughs> I, I deserve it. All right. I appreciate you guys. You have a beautiful night. Looking forward Thank to you it. So much. Have Thank a you great so much. one. Appreciate Take care, buddy. Bye bye. I'm very impressed, by the way, at how I'm able to change these screens. Uh, now, it, well, oh, yeah. uh, almost here. I'm going to add one more now screen. There we go. Now it looks good. Now it looks nice. And by the way, for the people who are watching this right now, make sure to slam that subscribe button, smash the like button, smash the bell. The bell is very important. Add those likes and sneed those super chats. And Curtis, before we go, I got to read the super chats as well. So that's coming up real soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, the only, the only other, the only other thing that I would say before the super chats regarding what you just said right now is. I wish we can take a time machine and go back in time uh, before Lenin, because you were talking about Lenin's plight with the new economic yeah. policy. Sure, my counter point to that would be if the Duma of 1917, the first revolution, were oh, to yeah. have been the, the case, the worst, but they're not fun, they're but, at, but at least we wouldn't have had that situation with Lenin uh, and Stalin yeah, and all that. Know, you disagree? Solzhenitsyn, 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 uh... Yeah, in, in what essay? I think it's in one of my favorite ones, which is As Breathing and Consciousness Return. It's a very obscure piece in which he rips the, rips the shit out of Andrei Sakharov, which is amazing, watching Solzhenitsyn like, just like totally tee off on Sakharov. You know, his line about that period is um, power like a ball of fire bounced from hand to hand until it fell into hands hard enough to hold it. And the, which is a very good, I was reading. So the Duma um, was too soft, Peter, that's what you're saying. The Duma's I, yeah, hands I was reading, were too I was reading Peter M. Sorokin's uh, diaries. Sorokin was, a, was, he was a Duma member, young Duma member who later flees Bolshevism, comes to Harvard and becomes one of America's like leading early sociologists. A very interesting story. And yeah, I mean, they, they, it's too soft. It's just like. They were horrible fucking people because Lenin could have never caused that revolution on his own. Like they were the ones who were responsible. Power just fell into Lenin's hands. But, you know, Milyakov, Kerensky, you know, this whole gang, uh, absolutely horrible people. The people who I would say were not as horrible by a long shot in comparison would be the uh, uh, like him or hate him, the liberal government of Russia in the mid to late 90s 
at around the time that Putin was uh, taking things over. Because Putin, right now, you could say, well, the guy doesn't have much of a choice. I agree. Back then, he did have a choice. Back then, things could have gone very differently if he did not implement the kind of tyrannical rule over time slowly by getting more of his friends to have the uh, share of the wealth and all the mining industries I think, and so but on I, and but so But, I forth. mean, if you talk to most ordinary Russians, won't, won't they tell you that, like, the 90s were the absolute pits i mean like no but here's the thing the 90s were the absolute pits until they weren't and they weren't not because of putin in fact putin was dealing drugs back then in st petersburg harbor when he was the vice mayor of st petersburg and he allegedly uh uh destroyed uh physically you know he assassinated um what's his name the uh, mayor of uh st petersburg at that time Subchak. Yeah, he yeah. assassinated Subchak, but in return, he took really good care of his daughter, you know, as a, because he was one of those people, Subchak, who knew way too much. So Putin wanted to eliminate him as well as other people who knew too much about his past. And these are people who were looking at, like, the KGB people. They were looking at the wealth of the West, and they wanted that shit. But unfortunately it ends up happening you got to pay for your wife's brother's condominium you got to pay for this for that and eventually you're just stuck in the center of this giant network of corruption at which point mm -hmm. it's like the only way for you to go forward is just like keep having a war and keep invading shit and this is the t this is where we are right now unfortunately i wish it was well, not so yeah I, I i feel you know we're close to an agreement in a way because my feeling is is not that putin is too the problem with Russia today is not that Putin is too strong, but that he's too weak in the sort of... I knew you were going to say that. Here, here's the thing. Next time, I'm going to challenge you on that. But yeah, let's we got to go, go let's to Super go. Chats. Let's, let's, let's keep it... We went, okay. Yeah, let's, let's keep it Slavic next time. We'll, we'll All go, right. We'll, here we we'll, go. Here we go. We'll, 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 we'll All right. Okay. Uh, Eric XPP <laughs> donated $4.99. Only way to act to have Yarvin's views work is to speed up putting people in pods and eating bugs. Theo, Mark, Balaji cite Yarvin's uh, Rex, but not him. Balaji, that's the Indian dude. I don't know what... Yeah, uh... yeah. no, no, he, he, does, he, does, he does footnote me in his book, but, uh, you know, I prefer um, uh, my ideas to propagate rather than my... Uh notoriety indeed uh barrett williamson ten dollars this may be crass and off topic but if chance mm. can you ask until uncle yarv what bands were meaningful to him beyond the rolling stones and joy division what were the foundationary hits for moldbug wow um you know there are like various periods but like uh, a lot of really early, uh, you know, first of all, you have like sort of classics like, you know, Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen or whatever, like the, those um, the stuff my dad was into, stuff that doesn't really get old. But also you have a lot of the early techno and IDM period, like the Orb, Orbital, you know, is still putting out, you know, who's, who's still putting out amazing work is Shriekback. That is like one band that I started listening to when I started listening to music in the early nineties and they're still fucking the, the recording amazing albums today. I don't know how these boomers do it, but uh, you know, the uh, yeah, yeah. It's stuff like stuff like that, like early, you know, like um, skinny puppy, um, you know, uh, that sort of stuff. 
I feel so out of place right now. I, I just have very standard taste in music. Like I like uh, Queen. I like uh, w w what else? I like a lot of strange Japanese music too. But that's the thing. Like that's what happens when you're like a weeb when you watch a lot of anime mm. and you just start browsing uh, for city pop hits and uh, all these '80s uh, Japanese idols. But you, you don't really care for any of that stuff. I'm surprised more parents aren't aren't concerned about this. <laughs> Wait, wh why Why should there be concern? Because, like, a lot of those Japanese singers from the 80s, they're actually really nice. Like, uh, in terms of the lyrics. You could, and... get into, you could get into a lot worse things than becoming a weeb. I'm just saying, you know, like, like my children are not weebs, so. All right, good. All right, uh, make sure you keep them that way. Uh, next, we have uh, Eric. Another another Eric XPP four ninety nine Yarvin. You need to give us a playbook. Us idiots need some guidance. Thanks. I'm working on it. Thank you for your four ninety nine. Uh, Maida Ronan, who is by the way the great twenty dollar patron patron patreon slash break the rules. I'm gonna have an exclusive Patreon only video coming out really soon with God's Joker. Be sure to check that out. And he says, Curtis, what do you see as a path to post-democracy United States? World War III, economic collapse, voter fatigue, government made obsolete via AI, robo-waifu revolution. I mean, speaking of, like, interest in Japanese culture. I think, it, uh, uh, I think it'll yeah. feel, uh, you know, let me give a sincere question okay. like that. I feel it'll feel sort of like a big joke that's so funny it becomes real. I think there's actually like actually, you know, there's something we could learn from like the whole Zelensky thing, like the, you know, the the servant of the people, uh, you know, it's like the TV show that becomes an administration. Unfortunately, it ends very badly with him becoming an American puppet. But, you know, that couldn't happen in this country. I mean, you know, one of the things that they they say historians will often ask is shut up, Siri. Um, the historians will often ask, why are there no revolutions in the United States? And the answer is very simple. It's the only country in which there is no American embassy. And so it really means something entirely different to have a, a, a color revolution in a country in which there's no American embassy. But it'll feel sort of like that. Oh, and to the uh, question that uh, Sage, well, not a question, the comment from Sage over here, I'm just seeing it on the frozen screen. Love really just said NATO can coerce countries to join. No, I mean, of course, there are certain people that can obviously coerce countries to join. I can't the coerce bigger... them. It... Well, no, no yeah, they can induce them. The bigger issue, though, is that if a country is being a threat to a lot of other neighboring countries like Latvia, Lithuania, so on and so forth, they're going to keep that in mind when making those kind of choices. But anyway, uh, we have another uh, – okay, may, and by the way, do you know what robo-waifus are? Because Maida Ronan mentioned that, and that is a project yeah, of his. I have a, a vague, vague idea what a robo-waifu is. But I don't yes, know. he's – okay. Uh, you never know what's going to happen in the future. But anyway, XPP Eric, one more. one ninety thousand. 199 you need my institution to actually make change so that is in um in quotes well i guess that's what we were talking about earlier wasn't it uh don Cuccino, 199 is a gaddafi type figure more likely in the usa well, Gaddafi is really a very Libyan figure, um, <laughs> and uh, really it's it's hard to get more Libyan than Gaddafi. So I, I think you'd you, you'd see him uh, you'd see a very very different aspect. I think the problem of um, 
defining what a, what an American Gaddafi would mean is very interesting, but perhaps it's uh, at a slightly higher pay grade than a dollar ninety nine. Mm. I can imagine something from like Idiocracy with the uh, pro wrestling president with like these female bodyguards being around him. Like who knows? Sure, I mean Trump. Trump was as close as we came for a while. Yeah. So uh, here we go. Vile, uh, Vile Van Gogh. $20. Thank you so much, Vile Van Gogh. Reading suggestions, illuminating in great detail, influence and connections and relationships university systems have to Congress, federal agencies, mainstream media with recent history examples, and in parenthesis, iron pentagon downstream from university. I would read, I would read, I would read, you know, the sort of the core of how this got established was really the foundation network. I always recommend... Uh, there was, you know, there was a Democratic Congress in the U.S. between the 30s and the, and the 80s, with a brief exception in the mid-1950s at the height of McCarthyism. And that exception was used to establish the only congressional committee, the Reese Committee, which has ever investigated the great foundations using, you know, the subpoena power of the Congress together with the, like, actual skills of the, you know, people in the 1950s. So the chief counsel of this called Renee Wormser wrote a book called Foundations, Their Power and Influence. And you'll sort of discover that when reading that, which is a very good book, or you can read the Reese Committee hearings themselves. It's kind of mind blowing if you're actually into reading congressional hearings, but you'll see kind of a lot of that there of sort of how the government basically outsourced its brain to these institutions. I mean, and sort of outsourcing its brain was kind of, it wasn't really skullduggery in a way because it was kind of the whole, almost the purpose of the progressive, early progressive movement in America. They wouldn't have necessarily, they wouldn't have put it that way at all. But what I like about reading this stuff that's was compiled in the 50s, but of course is reviewing the last half century of the history of this stuff is that you really see it like, you know, going on you know there's just like one history professor i think who's he's recounting a conversation he had with charles merriam who is um also a history history and political science professor who was responsible for a lot of this like direction of like funding and granting and merriam at one point it's just like he's just like they're like hanging out walking down the street and merriam's just like i have too much power like i don't think anyone should have as much power as i have you know and so you know there's uh, uh that's never a feeling i have i don't think anybody has that feeling these days so you know when somebody gets a vibe there's something pretty interesting going on um, and especially it's not even a humble brag like i feel the such is the greatness of these institutions and their youth that i feel this motherfucker really did feel that he had too much power it wasn't a humble brag and that's kind of that's my book Three more super chats left over here. So, uh, chairman of the board, B O R E D, very clever. Uh, Ten Canadian dollars. Has Yarvin ever read Alexander Kajevi? Um, I have not. I find the you know, uh, Kajev is a Hegelian, of course. Um, moreover, he's may Allah forgive me for uttering this <laughs> word. Is European, you know, and <laughs> the, the, the continental kind of prose tradition is so like I can tell that like Hegel is trying to tell me something, but I'm just like, you know, I uh, it's like not only that 
he's trying to impress me too much. It's like Carlisle is also trying to impress me, but Carlisle, when he tries to impress me, is trying to like entertain me. Whereas I get the sense that like Hegel or people in his tradition are like trying to like, you know, I'm just like, I know from the bottom of my heart, you could say this in a way that I would consider good writing and you don't. And therefore, like you're displaying disrespect toward me, a citizen of the 21st century. And therefore, I will display the disrespect toward you, a citizen of the 20th century, by beating something else. And so that's mm. unfortunately even, how it goes. Even if it means missing out on certain uh, things, because at least the way that I, find, I you know, yeah. basically yeah. I, I, anything that's anything that's present in the world that matters is present in Anglo-American scholarship. You know, it's like like the the caliph said when he burned the library of Alexandria. He's like basically like either it's in the Quran, you know, <laughs> and uh, um, the uh, all right, fair, uh, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, sage bigoted, bigoted, but fair. Uh, speaking of uh, continental sage, five euros. I'm an elf. <laughs> I'm an what? elf, and I'm an I. Elf. <laughs> no, no, that's not the whole thing. Hold on, there's yeah. more. I'm. <laughs> I'm like, an elf. <laughs> I'm an elf, and I like, and I like jobs elves usually do. But the current yeah. elves are absolutely the most insufferable people to be around. Where should I go and do? Oh, this is a hard problem for everyone. This is everybody's like most important, like hard problem, basically. And like the answers to a problem like that just have to be really individual. I wish I could tell you that was there was a general answer, but it like depends so much on your skills and your interests and like what kind of bullshit you can and can't put up with and like uh, all i'm saying is like be i guess i would say like be creative but don't be like larpy and you know be like realistic in terms of like you know you are an elf like don't try to pretend that you're not a fucking elf you're a fucking elf you know but at the same time it, there's a lot of leeway in like building an elf life. That's one of the beautiful things about being an elf. So like be creative and like be assured that you're asking the right question. And final super chat from Joe mama, 1999. Thank you so yeah, much, thanks, Joe. Thanks. <laughs> that's great. Isn't it? Uncle Yarv with everything that's happened since you spoke about Elon's acquisition of Twitter, he's obviously leaned to centrism. Have you had any thoughts since the acquisition? Your hot Elon Musk take. I, I've had many thoughts since the acquisition. I, I'm constantly thinking I wake, I think when I wake up and when I go to sleep. And I may even think when I dream. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, centrism is like, there's a kind of sort of, I like, centrism is sort of always pathetic, but it's sort of always the best you can do in some ways. And sort of the tension between this is pathetic and this is like the best you can do is like really, I think what we're seeing now is sort of the first, if I'm going to put the most positive possible pro Elon spin on it, what we're seeing is sort of 
the interaction between Elon's preconceived centrist libertarian ideas of what's wrong or what with Twitter or what should be right with Twitter and you're seeing those interact with reality and that interaction has gone well in a few ways and not well in in other ways and the thing to keep in mind is that if Elon deserves the greatness with which he is frequent to which which is frequently ascribed to him and he certainly does this in his other operations at the same time he's getting older and, and your brain just gets less flexible it just does he will basically adapt his perspective to that experience and but it requires an understanding of like very uncentrist things for example to understand like why like twitter blue is a bad idea basically requires you to not be a centrist and you could be a screaming lib or you could be a hardcore reactionary and you could understand that but you cannot be a centrist and understand it and so like uh, you know, among great men, you know, error creates learning and they adjust and they become even greater. So hopefully that's kind of what I would want to see. Excellent. And uh, with that, we are coming to a close on the stream with one more super chat here from Joe Mama. Th uh, thanks, Daddy. One ninety nine. So there we go. You're welcome. And also, I, I put a poll up over here uh, asking the people, the good people watching this, who is a patron? With one entry says, of course I'm a patron. And the other entry says, I will be one now. And that's patreon.com slash break the rules. I am right. using the YouTube algorithm to put certain things in front of people's faces so that they see it and react to it and think, you know what? I actually want to help this love character make this into something that grows and expands and uh, helping to bring more people on. And if you become a patron today, look at this. Here is what you get. You are going to get for the $20 an incredibly beautiful magnet. Here, you can see this too, Curtis. This is created Sweet. by my father, Alexander Polyakov. These are, you know, high quality magnets over here made out of great uh, wooden material. And these could be yours for uh, the $20 patronage. And if you're a $50 patron, you are going to get a custom magnet, whatever design you want to. You don't need to tell the world. I mean, within limits, of course, like no pornography and stuff. But, you know, like you could probably ask for like, I know, uh, uh, what would you ask for, Curtis, if you would want a custom maybe, magnet? Maybe I might ask for the Azov logo. There we go. Yeah, the Azov logo. <laughs> so uh, whatever whatever you want. Uh, you know, he could even make like a Putin monkey face or something. So, uh, a Putin monkey face. Perfect. Yeah, perfect, the monkey. Perfect. Uh, exactly. So, and also the uh, f uh, the five dollar tier gets you MP3s of the episodes uh, after they come out. It also gets you special access to certain places on the uh, Almighty Break the Rules Discord. And if you guys are not on the Break the Rules Discord, I don't know what you're doing with your life. It is the happening place to be right now. Uh, and Curtis, if you like the uh, usernames of some of the people here, I think that you are going to get a real kick out of the uh, Discord server and I'm sending the Discord server in the chat. Here it is. So all the people who are watching, I know how much you guys love Discord. Go into that Discord server right now. Become a patron. Patreon.com slash break the rules. Smash that like button. Smash that subscribe button. Click the bell. Uh, Curtis, is there anything uh, you would want to leave the good people with? Anything I would you're want working them on? to say, yes. check out my Substack at 
graymirror.substack.com. That's gray with an A, the American way. Do it. There we go. Thank you guys right. so much. Thank you, Thank Curtis. You so much.